If you have your Bible with you, would you turn with me please to Matthew chapter 21 as we come to read what is one of the most dramatic, exciting accounts of this last week of the life of Christ, which we of course know as Holy Week. And the passage we're reading this morning comes immediately after the passage which focuses on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so, as we begin chapter 21, we're reading from verse 12, page 1532 of the Church Bible. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. I suspect earlier this morning when the children came in celebrating Palm Sunday and reenacting the children of the first century when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, it is always so special to see children active in church. And of course, we love to see them and love to hear their thoughts on God and prayer and all of that. And a few weeks ago at a Wednesday Bible study that I teach, I shared some letters from children, just a sentence or two, as they were writing to God. And so I wanted to share them again this morning. And so the first one comes from Larry. And Larry writes, Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. And you can understand why Larry would say such a thing. And then Neil, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? And what Neil is telling us, of course, is something we all know. When you come to worship Sunday morning, if you come for a funeral or a wedding, or if you come into church, there is appropriate behavior and there is inappropriate behavior. And this morning as we come to this, as I said moments ago, one of the most dramatic passages in the gospel narratives, you realize that what is taking place is so unusual that if it happened in any church in the Greenville area during a morning service, it would be all over local news by that night. I suspect, in fact, people would get out their iPhones and they would film what takes place as the pastor overturns the communion table and starts scattering baptismal fonts and uh, microphones and crucifix. You would think, what has happened? And that was exactly the sense of what happened when Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers 
in the temple immediately after his entering into Jerusalem. Now, there are two contexts I need you to get this morning. And the first is the first part of Matthew chapter 21, and the second is the cultural context. And as I give you these background and cultural contexts, I'll try and be as quick as I can, so please be patient with me. The context, first of all, of Matthew's gospel is this, that Matthew describes what is happening in these terms. And he does it at verse 4, and he writes, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, we know this passage well, but we may be in danger of being over-familiar with it. Because notice what he says in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what the prophet had said. And the last time Matthew recorded those words were way back in Matthew chapter 1. And there he uses identical language. There he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in chapter 16, when Jesus is walking with his disciples, he engages them in conversation and said, now, who do people say I am? And some of them responded and said, well, some people think you're John the Baptist back to life. Others are saying you're very like Jeremiah or Isaiah or one of the Old Testament prophets. And then Jesus stops and he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter, of course, speaks up for the entire group, as he often does, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to say, I must go to Jerusalem, where I will suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law, but on the third day rise again. That's chapter 16. So chapter 1, we see his divinity on display. Chapter 16, we see it again. And then just before chapter 20, chapter 19, almost identical language. I must go up to Jerusalem, suffer and die at the hands of the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, but on the third day rise again. And so when you're reading Matthew's gospel, you begin with, here is Emmanuel, God with us. And throughout his gospel, a journey is taking place. He's moving forward. Over those three years, there is a sense of anticipation and expectation. And now he's coming to Jerusalem. And the children and people in their hundreds are throwing down palm branches and cloaks. Hosanna to the Son of David. Glory to God in the highest. And Emmanuel, God with us, had entered into his final week in Jerusalem. And in fact, that week is so significant that even a cursory glance at Matthew's gospel will tell you this, 
that Matthew spends almost a third of his gospel on the last week of the life of Jesus. You read any other historical figure, probably a third of the biography will not be given to the person's death. Abraham Lincoln, would they write a third of the biography of what happened at Ford's Theater? Probably not. Winston Churchill, would they spend a third of the biography on his last week? No. And what Matthew is telling his reader is this, watch out, listen, be careful. What you're about to discover is extraordinary because God has come to Jerusalem. That's what's going on in this passage. Now, having set it up from Matthew's gospel, let me set it up for you culturally. And the reason I'm setting it up for you culturally is this. That during that final week, it was also Passover week, and that was quite intentional in the purposes and plans of God. He knew that Jesus would go to the cross on Passover week. And Passover week was important for this reason, that Jewish people from all over, what academics call the Mediterranean Basin, in other words, if you're looking at a map, start over here in the east, this is Libya, and as you move to the west, you move from Libya into Egypt, you'll get to Alexandria, ancient Carthage, then you can travel up to Jerusalem. And Jewish people from along the North African coast would make their way for Passover up to Jerusalem. And the population of Jerusalem, it's hard to say definitively, but scholars from that day, in fact, Tacitus, who was a historian for the Roman Empire, he says around 600,000 people, half a million or just over, lived in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. But during Passover, it went up rapidly to 1.1 or 1.2 million people. And the folks who'd come from Passover, mom, dad, two or three children, sometimes grandparents, would make that eight to ten day journey. They would eventually arrive. They would settle down and their accommodation was probably getting good accommodation was the number one thing in their mind. And then, of course, the focus of our time together in Jerusalem for the Passover, one of those major points would be going to the temple. And they would imagine in their mind and be looking forward to it for some weeks. They were thinking as a family, they would go into the temple, they would buy perhaps a small sheep, maybe a lamb or a young goat, perhaps a couple of pigeons or doves. They would then have it sacrificed and they would give thanks to God for his blessing and his faithfulness over the last year. As a family, they would pray together not just for the blessings of the last year, but pray for their future, pray for the children growing up, praying for parents and grandparents and all of that. It was quite an event. And then, of course, they'd have a Passover meal together. But when they arrived in the temple area, they entered the temple through the court of the Gentiles, exactly as Jesus would do. And the court of the Gentiles was 172 thousand square yards. Now, to give you a sense of that, imagine 35, 35 football fields. 
that will give you a sense of the size and scale of the court of the Gentiles. It was enormous. And of course, during Passover week, there wouldn't be just an extra couple of hundred people there. There would be thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And as the pilgrims were making their way to Jerusalem, in their mind, they're focused on that moment of sacrifice, that time of prayer. They've been saving up for some time. They arrive in the court of the Gentiles. They take their money with them, and they try to buy a lamb. And the person selling it says, let me see your money. And he looks at it, and it's from Egypt. And he says, this money's no good. It has a pagan god on it, a pharaoh. You can't buy anything in the temple with that. If you go to the other side of the court of the Gentiles, you'll find someone who will change that into Jewish money for you. Then come back here and you can pay your temple tax, which was half a shekel, and then over there, then you can buy an animal for sacrifice. And of course, the dad goes away over and he goes over and he shows him the money and he says, yes, we're from Egypt. Yes, it's a gold coin. I know it's a pharaoh. In Egypt, we would get five shekels for this coin. And the seller would, or the exchange merchant would look at it and say, are you kidding me? Five shekels, this isn't worth two and a half. And he says, but in Egypt, we can get, well, you're not in Egypt now. If you want a sacrifice, if you want an animal, if you want to pay the temple tax, Two and a half, I might go three just because it's you and I feel sorry for your children. And that went on again and again and again and again and again. And some people would turn up without money, but they would have a valuable bracelet, perhaps gold-plated. How much can I get for this? Can you give me enough to buy an animal for sacrifice? And you can imagine those conversations going on again and again and again, and you had commercialism which was out of hand with corruption, and it was just beyond imagining. Now, in your mind, come with me and stand there and just watch and listen. Listen to the noise of doves and geese, young cattle, lambs, goats, all of the exchanging, the bartering back and forward. Think of the stench. Think of the noise. And when Jesus arrives and he sees all of this being enacted in front of his eyes, I imagine him shaking his head and thinking, good night, what have we come to? This is a place of prayer. This is a place of worship. This is a sacred space that's to be treated as such. This is a place where people gather for prayer. This is where the temporal meets the eternal. This is where the secular meets the sacred. This is where the sinful comes to a holy, gracious God, and you have turned it into a marketplace, a den of robbers. Are you beginning to get a sense of what's going on? I can't help wonder in my mind 
if when Jesus is standing there, and it's not his first time in the temple, but he knows what's about to take place. He knows that Calvary is coming. I wonder if in the mind of Jesus it went back to Isaiah chapter 6. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Isaiah, you know this, that in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, who was an outstanding individual, talk of a man of integrity and character, of transparency, a man who deeply, profoundly loved the Lord. And in Isaiah chapter 6, you get to read what is, for all intents and purposes, Isaiah's diary. And in there, he writes this. He writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated in the temple, and his robe filled the temple. Now remember, 35 football fields and the presence of God is so overwhelming he fills the whole place and Isaiah says this he records it right there and he says there were countless cherubim and seraphim angelic beings bowing down in front of God because here was God in all of his wonder and glory and transcendent majesty. He who is holy, 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 cried angels. He who is, or rather was, and is, and is to come. The Alpha and the Omega, very God of very God in all of his splendor and holiness. And Isaiah says this, Woe is me, because I'm undone. And why does he say that in the midst of this profound, deep, life-changing experience? Because Isaiah encountered God as he truly is. All of that, I suspect, was running through the mind of Jesus. God as he truly is. And we have turned the temple into this market, this free-for-all. Really? Really? Is that what we do? And this passage is distinctly uncomfortable for us. Because Jesus is highlighting for us this. That we are comfortable with Jesus as long as he is meek and mild and gentle. We can control meek and mild and gentle. We can control a God of love and grace. We're comfortable with him transforming us, renewing us, equipping us, enabling us to live out our faith. That's what we're familiar with what we're comfortable with. But when you move to that level of profundity and God in righteous holiness and power and majesty begins to work in the deep places of our lives, when he begins to turn over those areas in the 
deepest recesses of our heart and mind and soul, and he does it by exposing us to his holiness, we are decidedly uncomfortable. We are unsettled. And Holy Week is for us a challenge. It's a challenge. We're comfortable with them throwing down palm branches and singing Hosanna to the son of David. We like that. We like the celebration. But when he begins to work in a deep, profound manner and challenges those recesses in heart and soul and mind, then it becomes uncomfortable. Then it becomes challenging. And the passage immediately, or rather the verses immediately following him, turning over the money changers and driving them out of the temple, what do we read? We read that the children gathered along with the blind and the lame. And when he performs miracle after miracle after miracle, and when he transforms lives and brings wholeness and healing and refreshing love and grace, what do the chief priests say? They look at him and they were indignant. How dare they? God is at work. Emmanuel is in the temple and they were indignant because they could no longer control him. That's what was going on. And dare I say this, and allow me to say this as gently as possible because I know the reality of it in my own life. That when God begins to seek out those dark corners of my life, when it begins to point to my will and my demeanor and my motivation and my desires, and he says to me, Richard, you need to clean up this area and this area and this area and this area, and you need to get right with me there are times when I become indignant. There are times when I say, Lord, I'm willing to give you this area and this area and this area, but don't take that from me. That's my darling sins, the sins I really enjoy, the sins I hold close, the sins I nurse. And then he takes me to the woodshed. And then he says, it's time to change. It's time to be the man I've called you to be. It's time that you were the lady I've called you to be. It's time that you and I did business together. And if you are ever to know me in the profundity of unrestrained, undiluted holiness and grace, it's time to go deep and it's time to be radical. That's why Holy Week is uncomfortable because we cannot walk away. We can't pretend it didn't happen and we cannot, cannot refuse him because we know how it ends. We know that he died for our sins. 
We know what it means to sing, oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary. He became sin for us. Do you understand that? It wasn't that God simply blamed him. He became sin for us. That's the wonder of it. And we have to face it. And seek again his forgiveness and his grace. And the opportunity to start afresh. Is it painful? Always. Is it tearful? Often. Is it healthy? Absolutely. Because when he begins to deal with us at that level, he introduces us to the sins in our lives that we need to confront. And he insists on it. Secondly, he highlights for us daily patterns that need to change. Motivations, desire, patterns of thinking and behavior. And thirdly, he reminds us of his love for us. And it's out of that love and grace that we come and say, Father, cleanse me, change me, turn over the tables in my life. Help me to be rid of them. And help me, please, O oh God, to be devoted to you all over again. Holy Week is uncomfortable. And it should be. Because next Sunday is still to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. And may we this week, like young Neil, be able to say, Lord, I think about you at times, even when I'm not praying. Father, challenge us, deal with us, refine us, reshape us, that we might be yours and yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray.